All right. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Systems of Wealth podcast. I am your host, Noah Cronfly. I am very excited for the podcast today, not only because I'm repping a beard for the very first time, but I'm joined by a very special guest, someone who is, well, just a few doors down from me as right as of we speak right now in the same office, but someone that is a long-term client, long-time client, mentor, most importantly, a friend. It is the all-powerful Josh Lewis. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today, my friend. No, we're happy to be here. I want, I want to see what you're doing here with this podcast and sharing people uh, systems of wealth. I want, to, I, want to get, I want to get in on this. <laughs> well, I'm very excited. I mean, honestly, you are a big inspiration for me even starting this podcast. And I do want to just start off simply by saying thank you. You, uh, you are someone that took a chance on me as a young 19-year-old when I was just getting started. So without you, I wouldn't have this type of opportunity now. You've stuck through, you've stuck with me through the pandemic, through my move to Vegas, through my move to Texas, to Philly, back from Philly. When I got cut out of a business by a business partner, you continue to be a very big part of my foundation as an entrepreneur. And I don't get the chance to say thank you a lot. And so I just want to express my immense gratitude for you and having you as part of my life. So again, truly, truly thank you. You are very welcome, but don't forget, you also left out a whirlwind romance in there that we went through. <laughs> Indeed. The, the, be the beginning, the middle, and the end, all Goodness. of that. So Indeed. Yeah. Our, our, our young man is growing into an <laughs> older man right in front of our eyes. Indeed. And I got the beard to, to prove it. And quite honestly, I mean, like, the other thing I wanted to say thank you for is like, the, you know, getting to work with you, you have provided me an environment and a vehicle through Bywise that allows me to have a a job and an opportunity that I, you know, get to engage in. I'm curious about. It's fun for me. It's challenging for me. It's, you know, getting to use all of the skills that I feel like I've cultivated and developed over the years. So, you know, without the opportunity of getting to work with you, like I wouldn't get to say that I get to enjoy what I do every single day. So again, you know, like can't express my gratitude enough for that. It's a fun little laboratory and you know um, that I like to ask questions. I like to think out loud. And so uh, having another voice in the room, another brain to bounce things off of, you know, we, we come up with lots of ideas. <laughs> They're not all good ideas, but sometimes just uh, getting them out in the world and talking about them, if not all the way taking them through to testing phase, we can determine whether they were uh, actually valuable ideas or just uh, experiments getting us <laughs> to where we, we want to be. And the big thing, like I, bywise, I, I still feel like we haven't found it yet. Like it's a big experiment. Right. We're trying jillions of things and we're getting closer and closer but there's going to be a point where it all comes together and i don't Clicks. think it's it's far off in the future but right. um it, it comes back to that idea of just coming up with thoughts ideas um knowing what we are and what our value is and what mm -hmm. we're trying to get out into the world yes and what are all of the tools that we have now to get that out there and then most important like it comes back to efficiency what mm -hmm. are the most efficient tools for getting that out there because we talk about all sorts of things. There's an endless uh, quantity of rabbit holes that we could go down. It's 100%. figuring out which ones are the right ones or the biggest payoff. Right. Hundred. Do you remember the? Do you remember the very first time we met? Well, I was sitting right there in that office there yes, at that were. time, and uh, <laughs> Shane came in with this great idea that uh, you were running Facebook ads for uh, for Patriots and Paws, and wanted to mm -hmm. see what we could do for for Bywise. Yep, well, it's it's funny because I just bring it up because I remember you ever sitting, you were sitting here, and I was sitting there, and I was quite intimidated because I knew you were operating at a level beyond what I could even comprehend at the time. But 
I remember we spent some time whiteboarding on the wall and that's still continuously what we do almost every time we get to get together and chat and talk is whiteboarding our ideas out. So yeah, it's, it's funny just to be sitting here now and talking to you. It's so cool. Well, someday we'll grow up and we'll get it all figured out and we'll <laughs> look back and like, remember all those tests and experiments and crazy ideas we had to go through before we actually figured out what we were doing? Right. Before it clicked. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a fun convo because you and I obviously don't get usually have like the time to have like a longer form conversation and kind of dig into some of these fun topics and, you know, some of the different um, rabbit holes that I'm sure we'll get into in this conversation. But where I always like to start uh, these interviews or these podcasts is with a pretty basic question, you might actually be able to answer it a little bit easier than some of the other people that I've talked to. But where I always like to start is usually like when people ask you what you do, what what is it that you usually say? Depends on who the person is and what uh, level they're they're operating at. If it's 100%. a borrower, funny, if it's a borrower, someone looking to borrow money to buy a home, uh, yep. to refinance a home, it's kind of a different conversation because they're looking for something different. But in simple terms, what we do is we help people integrate real estate into their long-term wealth building plan through optimized financing solutions. Mm. So it's a fancy way of saying efficiency in the borrowing process mm -hmm. to acquire and control a leveraged asset real estate that its appreciation over time with that leverage will make a massive difference in your, your total lifetime wealth. Yes. Oh, I love that a hundred percent. And you know, a big part of like my own, how I sort of found real estate and mortgage and this niche was just like my own fascination around money and building wealth. And that was part of my attraction to, you know, all of this was just the, we are having consistently conversations around the thing that I'm just most curious about. And that is wealth building. And I think it's a big interest of people that are going to be listening to this podcast. is just that type of topic and how to be leveraging the different way. Like when we talk about systems of wealth, like the th different things that go into it are, you know, your, your income, your liquidity and cash on hand, your credit, managing debt, you know, how to leverage liabilities versus assets and all of those things. So I, you know, I definitely want to dive deep into sort of how that, you know, real estate in the house and that purchase is going to play a role in building wealth over the long term. But take me back a little bit to like, I know you and I share sort of the experience of being a collegiate athlete, but how did you like, where did your playing career, like how did that play a role into then now finding yourself, you know, kind of in this profession of, you know, sort of mortgage and real estate? So I played basketball at Eastern Washington University. My plan was to not get a job. I got a wonderful <laughs> degree. It was paid for by someone else. That was yeah. fantastic. Love that. Um, the plan was to go overseas and play basketball. And about two, three weeks after uh, the season ended, we were playing pickup ball in the gym. And um, people find this hard to believe because 50-year-old Josh looks a little different than 22-year-old <laughs> Josh. But one of my buddies wanted to see if I could dunk from the free throw line. So the the answer is I could not, but we got really close, <laughs> got really close. But in attempting to do it, I partially ruptured my patellar tendon. And it's a weird right. injury in that if you fully rupture it, you're in big trouble. But right. partial rupture, you're like, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't mm. feel good at all. And it doesn't go away. There's no surgery for a partial tear. So what they say is go home, come back every 90 days, and we'll tell you whether it's healed itself or not. Yeah. So went home back here to Huntington Beach. So came home from Eastern Washington, uh, came back to Huntington Beach, um, not able to play basketball, not mm -hmm. able to do what I want to do. And after about three and a half, four months, my dad said, son, it's been wonderful having you home. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm getting a whole lot out of you laying on my couch all day. So if you can't play basketball, I do believe you're probably going to need to get a job. So um, 
talked to my grandma's husband, uh, my step grandpa. Mm -hmm. He had been a realtor for 25, 30 years, okay. realtor and, and real estate investor, probably more importantly, between say 1975 and 1982, bought 80 to hundred uh, units here in Huntington beach, bought and sold. So that was a really interesting mm -hmm. time. You hear about creative financing and all the cool things that used to happen pre 1982. Um, and it was good being around him, learning from him. And right. what we decided that real estate wasn't the right side. I'm good with numbers, mm. going to the mortgage finance. So my cousin was a processor. She got me a job as a loan officer. My mom had been a processor. So I kind of knew what went into it. The mm -hmm. processor is the person that puts the file together. After your loan officer talks with you, figures out what loan program you're going on and gathers the information, they hand it over to the processor to pull the title work together, clear up credit supplements, order your appraisal, and submit it to the underwriter for approval and clearing conditions to get your docs out. So my mom had done that. My cousin had done that. And so she said, oh, I can get you a job. They have a call center. Then, you know, we have a, a predictive dialer, which the funny <laughs> thing, there was a room at the time. In the 90s, there was a room that contained this massive computer that was a predictive dialer. And uh, they had a, another room full of cubicles and you sat in the cubicle and it would dial people all day. Hmm. They didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, right. To you. That was going to be my question is like, where are those, where's those leads coming from? Like, how are you guys marketing at the time? Title records. So you'd title buy them records. from title companies and it yeah. would say- um, Noah lives at this address. This is his phone number. And he borrowed $112,000 four years ago, likely interest rate 8%. And you would have one of those funky DOS screens that looks like uh, what they use in war games, probably <laughs> too, too old of a <laughs> yeah. reference for you, but the little green, it's not even like a real computer monitor. Right. And they would just pull up the data and all you could do is go through to the next call. And just so calls. Wow. thankfully, thankfully I was tough. Mm -hmm. And I was good. So in two weeks, I got promoted. So the All funny right. thing is, if you know anything about any of these boiler room call center type operations, mm -hmm. um, it is a very good first job for people out of recovery. So people that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, alcohol recovery, drugs, whatever. So most of the folks in there uh, did not come recently from college and college athletics. They had come from recovery. Oh, wow. All and right. So when it came time for a break, they would turn the dialer off and everyone would run to the door and start smoking out on the patio. <laughs> and I would get as far away from the cloud of smoke as possible. <laughs> right. But after getting promoted in two weeks, all of these guys looked around and they're like, what in the hell? I've been yeah. doing this for two and a half years. I'm right. better than that guy. And legit, several of the guys were way better on the phones than I was. They've been doing this for a long time. They had right. great personality, really slick. Um, and so they went to the owner and like, well, what's going on here? Why did this guy get promoted in two weeks? And they're like, well, you may or may not have noticed, but he comes in on time. He stays late. He hmm. wears a shirt and shirt and tie every day. Right. Um, he learned all of the numbers and he has his license. Do any of you have your license? <laughs> Do any of you come in in anything other than shorts and a dirty t-shirt? No. Um, are you on time every day? And the basics, to, basically. Yeah. To these guys credit, two or three of them immediately the following Monday came in in a shirt and tie All right. and started showing up on time <laughs> and dressing for the job they wanted versus the one they have. And several of them didn't, did get promoted to being a loan officer. So for me, once I got into the loan officer seat and those guys were making the calls and making the introductions to me, and I started seeing what that company was doing. Mm -hmm. It really was, it was, it was a really bad time in the mortgage industry where they were doing subprime loans where okay. you were going to people 
who really needed money badly and charging them way too much money for it. So right. after about 60 days of that, once I'm, I'm doing the numbers, and I'm going, this is nuts. I talked to yeah. a lady in Buena Park that had owned her home free and clear. Mm-hmm. And there was a company back in the 90s, it's now out of business, thankfully, um, that ended up a big two-hour 2020 special because they were doing this, just equity stripping. Oh, out of wow. I talked to this lady across the course of three refis and a little, little less than three years. She had gone from owning her home free and clear to owing $120,000 on maybe a $145,000 house at the time. And at that time, she couldn't borrow anymore because she had maxed out what was possible LTV-wise. And she had paid about $60,000 in fees to get $60,000 in cash. So with with that, you pretty quickly realize, yeah, this isn't for me. So I I was lucky. One of my good friends from high school, her father was vice president of a real mortgage company that worked Mm. with realtors, helping people buy homes and Mm -hmm. doing normal, reputable loans um, and got me in there. They put me at a desk at a Century 21 office. So I'm 22 years old. I've done about four loans in my life. (laughs) I'm sitting in a desk with experience, a a top producing Century 21 office at the time, probably had 60 realtors, 10 or 12 who were pros doing a lot of volume. Right. The good news was they were really cool. They didn't start giving me loans right away, but they'd let me listen in. They'd let me ask questions. Um, the other thing there at that time, my dad had bought me a laptop. This was funny. If I show you the, the computer, it's uh, the computer was about one-tenth as powerful as my phone is right now. <laughs> right. And about 900 times bigger. It was like 10 pounds, big fat thing. And it was color. That was a big thing. Oh, color boy. laptop. People were like, that's Silent. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So while I was not doing loans, sitting in the real estate office, pestering all the realtors, asking them questions about what they do, how it works, what's a contract, what's contingencies, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, We also did good faith estimates at the time. And we had these little duplicate forms. Like you would write it in hand on the first page. It would make a copy. You'd keep one for your file. You give one for the borrower. Well, borrowers have a fun way of saying, well, what if instead of a $120,000 home, I buy a $130,000 home? <laughs> what do those numbers look like? So I go, this is kind of silly. Yeah. So um, taught myself Excel. Okay. That, that very simple little form, converted it into Excel so that in two seconds, you change 120 to 130, mm-hmm. hit print, and boom, now Jeez. we have it. Because I've seen, I mean, anybody listening, me, Josh and I get to work in Excel a lot, and he is a masterful pro. Like it just blows me away, the formulas. And I had no idea it's been that long that you've had this skill in your back pocket. That's so cool. I literally, in so in the 90s, I graduated in 95, you would take um, information sciences 101. And mm-hmm. it was like, they would show you for one week, this is what a spreadsheet is. It's this so is valuable. What, this is what a, a Word class. doc is. So That's you right. had an idea of what it was, but I right. had never really deeply dug into it. And I said, here is how you teach yourself. Hmm. You teach yourself vertical lookup. So I could make a table over here with all of the mortgage insurance factors and I could change. So I set it up where there was like five fields, eight fields that you would change and it would calculate everything for you hmm. in two seconds. We'd print those out. So that was super valuable, helpful, useful for me because I learned the numbers. You can't program something to calculate the numbers for you unless you know the numbers like the back of your hand. So despite yes. the fact that I didn't have any loans, I knew exactly how the numbers went wow. into so pretty quickly, an, an agent gave me a deal. This was awesome. It was a $30,000 condo purchase in Southern California. <laughs> $30,000. That was possible. <laughs> the borrower made $1,700 a month. Okay. He was a sports writer for a newspaper out in the Inland Empire. Cool. And crazy thing, I lost track of him. And about seven or eight years ago, I opened up the LA Times. Now he's a sports writer at the LA Times. And I'll bet no you he makes way. more than $1,700 a month. <laughs> 
but that was that was my first loan. And again, it's just on the job wow. training, learning. You've got to get in front of deals. Um, so watching that and knowing that everyone in my mm -hmm. family who had money, we have a lot of um, I don't know, no one in our family was poor, but we got a lot of middle class people and we got yep. a handful of rich people in our family. Mm -hmm. All the rich people had a lot of real estate. So you mm -hmm. look around and you go, there's some sort of correlation there. And yep. and you know that I hammer on this hard all the time. You know, 12, 15 years ago, my Twitter handle, which I never was much of a Twitterer, mm. but uh, the Twitter <laughs> handle was Runners Die Broke. I have no animosity towards renters. Um, you don't look down at renters. You don't feel, uh, you know, like they're lesser than. My goal and objective is for everyone who is capable of successfully becoming a homeowner to help them bridge that gap at the right time to become a homeowner. Because the reality You've probably heard me say these numbers 10,000 times and get annoyed <laughs> by it. According to the 2019 survey of consumer finances, so before COVID, before home values increased 40%, homeowners had 44 times greater net worth than renters. Average net worth of a renter is $6,000. Average burial expenses are like seven or $8,000. So legitimately, if you die as a renter, the average renter, obviously there are rich renters out there who've done a great job saving. Um, but the, the average renter dies without enough money to properly bury them. And they're, they're a burden to their family. And there's reasons for that. It's not magic. And it's not to say that everyone at all times, if you're a renter, you should run out and buy a home. Right. But there are things that you should be working on to become the person who can successfully become a homeowner. Yes. Because real estate yes. is not a get rich quick scheme. It is the absolute best get rich slow scheme yes. because you have to have a roof over your head for your lifetime, which your mm -hmm. adult life, if you say from 20 to 80, for most people across 60 years, you have to put a roof over your head. If you can use leverage and paying down principal, borrowing, using other people's money, there's so many things that go into this for you that it, it takes care of itself over time and it builds the wealth for you. And most importantly, at some point you arrive at a freedom point where you no longer have a mortgage and the only cost of the shelter for you is taxes and insurance, which mm -hmm. a renter never gets to arrive at that point. Right. Yeah. That was something that I had on my notes, that renters die broke term, because I think, you know, people around my age are just sort of the millennial, you know, what's like trendy now, you know, like the Grant Cardone's, right? It's like buying is sort of like, it's a, owning a house is a liability and you're, it's a waste of your money. And, you know, he makes it sound like it's so easy to just sort of, you know, like I'm buying doors and it's, you know, the, my, my tenants are paying for, you know, paying for the mortgage itself. Right. And so it's a, just a bit generic and it's a little ambiguous and it's kind of hard of a, it's, it's a big concept for me to understand. And we, you and I have talked about this a lot because, you know, most people like, you know, we say it a lot, right? Like somebody buying a house is probably going to be the biggest financial decision they're going to go through, you know, in their lifetime, quite honestly, besides probably who they marry almost in a sense, but the, and then most people probably may never get into a position where they are becoming an actual owner of a property and they have tenants in there. Like that's a big, another big step to kind of step into. So that concept of then, okay, well then owning that house and building up equity over time, like for me was something that I understood from very like, you know, that it's the same, same sort of deal for me. Like my family doesn't have a whole lot of money getting thrown around, right? We're sort of middle class, but the people that are doing well, like, you know, some of my, you know, elderly grandparents and some of the other people, my, like the correlation was always, they were involved in real estate. That was always the same sort of thing that I noticed. And it's not even like, cause some people are like, you know, well, like the equity is just there. And of course, like your net worth goes higher, but it's the ability and the almost like the strategic things that you can do with building up equity over time that then allows you to maybe 
take a loan against that asset to either pay for your lifestyle or go and acquire another property or go and do something and start a business. There's so many things that allow you to do that, but your essentially your interest rate when you're renting is a hundred percent, right? Like you're just, there's nothing you really, you have, you don't have anything that you can do with that. But when you are then acquiring a piece of an asset and you're growing that equity and that piece over time, that gives you so much more, I wouldn't even say flexibility, but just decision-making and almost like power with your money, which essentially is what like I'm trying to do with this, right? It's just having people be intentional with the decisions that they're making and empowering somebody to then, you know, use these different pieces that are out there to ultimately enhance your life. Like that's all, that's all what we're after, right? It's just being able to play this game just at a higher level. I mean, that's really what it's all going to come down to. So for you and for anyone watching this show who does not own a home, burn this into your brain. There is no such thing as a 30-year fixed rent. Hmm. That is the crux of hmm. the issue here. Interesting. So today at highly elevated prices in a yeah. high cost area like Southern California, talked right. to a gentleman last week. He's in a very fortunate situation that he's rented his place for seven years. He got it below market. Landlord has never raised his rent. So he's wow, paying right. $2,100 a month hmm. for something that should rent for $4,000. Goodness gracious. <laughs> for him to go buy something equivalent, it would be about a $5,500 payment. So he asked oh, me, wow. he goes, am I crazy to even think about buying? Because I'm going to be paying $3,400 more a month. Hmm. And right now I can save a bunch of money. I go, I, I think you are crazy to buy a new residence and to give up that rental. I said, mm -hmm. no, let's remember, there's nothing binding that uh, landlord to never raising your rent. He could right. sell the place, he could get hit by a bus, his heirs could come in and go, hey, you know what? Rent should be $4,000. Yeah. So you are, uh, you know, depending upon his good grace to keep you at $2,100, but it's been there for seven years. You say you have a great relationship, unlikely to change. So let's look at buying an investment property, kind of like what you were talking about and putting that money to work for you and still enjoy the really nice place at a below market price. Because what that will do, again, we're paying down principal, we're fixing the cost. So let's say that that landlord was charging him what he should charge, 4,000, and he buys and he's paying $5,500 for something equivalent or even slightly inferior. You go, well, that's a bad deal. He's giving up $1,500 a month. Right. You go, okay, well, if his rent goes up 3% a year, which it's likely to, over the long haul, it has. So now we're talking an extra $120 a year. So in 12 years, he gets to mm. parity, if not sooner. 10 to 12 years, $5,500, $5,500. And 20 years later, you're paying $1,500 more to rent. 30 years later, by about the time that mortgage is paid off, you're paying double what you would pay on, on the, the mortgage. But the important part is that $1,500 difference, a big portion of that at his price point, over $1,000 a month was going towards principal. Right. So the, act, the actual additional cost was about $500 to own. But $1,000 of that, of that $1,500 difference mm. was going towards principal. So you're saving right. it in a non-liquid savings account that's yeah. sitting over there. And that's why we say you need to have a long-term time horizon. It's not everyone should buy at all times. Younger people like yourself, um, you have uncertainty in your relationship. You know, you would, you would like to find someone to, to marry at some point and that's going to change things. So yeah. you'd like to possibly have the flexibility of, of being a renter right now. Um, job wise, you're self-employed and responsible for yourself and location independent. You can go anywhere you want. Not everyone has that benefit. They may be here in California and say, Hey, I can get a $200,000 a year job, but I got to go to New York. Well, if you bought a house, you're kind of locked into that. If right. you buy a one bedroom condo as a single man and you end up getting married, 
that's not going to last or it's not going to work very long. So there are other things you have to take into account. Hmm. When, when we first saw this idea or people like being militantly against owning homes, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a good, it was good around 2008, <laughs> 2009, 2010. Yeah. We see the well, big downturn. So Okay. Real estate is cyclical. So at the bottom of the cycle, there are people who jump up and start screaming, this is stupid. Don't buy it. Costs way more to buy than rent in these high cost areas. Say, okay, let's follow that logic. If you are not going to buy, who do you have to be or what do you have to do to make sure that you end up with a similar net worth to owners, homeowners that have a 44 times greater net worth than renters? Most renters do not have the discipline to save and invest aggressively and competently to arrive at the same point. I will tell you, go out to Reddit. There are little forums of engineers who sit there and tell you that it is stupid to own a home. These are the guys that wear the same white t-shirt and khakis every day <laughs> who are happy renting a one bedroom or two bedroom apartment. And that's not to say bad things about it. I'm not saying they're a bad person, but there's a certain mindset there. They live a, a, an austere lifestyle. They're not you know, going out buying expensive cars. They're good with numbers. They're disciplined. And they go, look, I got my spreadsheet right here. All I got to mm -hmm. do is I save 22% of my salary. I invested over here in my 401k. It compounds, you know, uh, tax free. And if I get a 9.4% return, which over the last 12 <laughs> years, I've got 10.3, I'm going to arrive way wealthier than if I were to, to take my $20,000, $50,000, $100,000 as a down payment. So absolutely 100% true. The, the numbers that one of these people can put together for you and show you long-term historical averages, including home price appreciation, can show you that you can arrive even wealthier as a renter. Hmm. You have to ask yourself, am I that disciplined? Will I save the additional money in the early going? Because later on, renting is going to cost me more. But am I disciplined enough to save? Am I competent enough to invest and get that return? We talk about average returns in the market most people don't achieve that. There are yeah. super achievers who get big Warren Buffett type returns. Right. And most people do the exact wrong thing. They jump into to crypto when it's at a peak in, mm -hmm. in late 21, 22. Um, they, they sell when it starts you know, down 50% and don't get any recovery. So most people do not have that engineer mindset where they're very good with numbers, very disciplined and competent, comfortable investors. That's interesting. So no, so no one should tell you you can't achieve it as a realtor, right. but you better those, those things better apply to you and, and your abilities. And it's almost like getting rich sort of like on paper, like on a spreadsheet, like on that paper, yeah, you're getting rich, but like there's something different about like actual owning like a physical real asset, like real estate. Like that is, it's, it's, it's the combination of like getting rich in theory, like on paper, like, yeah, if I'm following this model and the model's great until either shit hits the fan or something's, you know, something gets, you know, a little bit played with or something's a little bit different. And then it's also like the lifestyle that comes along with it is like, well, acquiring, you know, uh, a home I can then, you know, build a family into, it could, you know, be part of like, you know, supplementing my lifestyle, all that good stuff. So that's a really interesting, and I appreciate your transparency on it because I think people, when they hear that and they're like, you know, buying a home is a bad decision. You no, know, they, you know, it's a very surface level sort of take to it. And it's like a headline sort of thing that they kind of jump at. And then they don't necessarily read into it any bit deep, any deeper. And they don't necessarily think about how it applies to you and your situation specifically. Cause that's always my big thing behind this is like my investment portfolio or strategy or my, you know, way that I'm going to approach my work 
my how I invest, all these different things, it's going to make sense to me. And it doesn't need to make sense to anybody else. But like, that's the whole idea behind it is finding your path and speaking to honestly, like that's something why, you know, I really enjoy just being around you so much because like I get to ask these questions that I'm curious about. And like, that's the cool thing about working with specifically with someone like you. And I don't think everybody in the loan business is like that, but you are like truly, truly, genuinely a like, I can't, I'm not going to classify you as like a financial advisor, but like talking to you is like, it feels like I'm talking to like, you know, how to actually understand like my finances on just like, you know, on a vast level and how everything plays into account rather than just like, I'm going to get you into a home because I want my commission so I can go buy a speedboat or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that's what it usually feels like in this, in this industry sometimes. A couple of things. The vast majority of our clients don't have any financial advisors in their lives. Right. They don't have enough assets in their mind to go yeah. get an advisor. So maybe mm. there's someone that administers the 401k at their work that they could talk to, or there was a, a luncheon where you could sit and lunch and learn. Yeah. Um, so a, a couple of things that that come out of that is we do advise and we do try and, and show folks over time what the, is the difference in the impact. What I will say is you can go wrong with housing. Um, our average buyer on the young side is 30, on the high side, 45. Very mm -hmm. rarely get them under 30. Um, and we occasionally will get a 50, 55, 60-year-old um, moving up, buying a dream home, moving down, um, whatever, buying a second home. 30 to 45-year-olds in 2008, when everything went haywire, yeah. they were 15 to 30. Right. A lot of them saw their parents lose homes, uh, family members lose homes. So, you know, the mindset of that generation is different and different in yeah. a good way, good and bad. So they have some negative connotations to home ownership because they don't really understand what all went into that and how that happened. But prior, from 2000 to 2005, we threw away the prior generation's wisdom of buy your home, pay it off over time. If you get a chance to reduce your interest rate, do that, but don't keep going resetting to a 30-year loan. Don't keep taking cash out. Yeah. So between 2000 and 2005, I had weird stuff where people would, um, soon as soon as they their home would go up $100,000, cool, give me 100 grand. I'm going to buy a boat. I'm going to pay off all this debt that I ran up. And then they would come back the next year. Hey, my home went up another 100 grand. I ran up my debt again. I needed to do this. We don't see that nearly as much anymore. There's yeah. always going to be a small subset of the population that is bad with money and yeah. undisciplined, right. but it was an epidemic at that time. I'm not saying it was everyone, but 20 to 30% of people were just mm. crazy about home equity and how they use that. So if you were to do that today, if over the last few years, as home values went up, you come and you say, hey, give me max cash out, which back in the day, that was 100%. You could get 100% of the value of your home wow. fairly easily at pretty decent terms. Wow. Now- anything over 80% is going to be egregious. And most people just go, yeah. yeah, no thanks. Right. So we don't have that because most of our borrowers remember the the downside and the yeah. bad sides of it. Um, but it is possible. If you just keep saying, hey, I'm going to refinance every time rates drop and I'm going to go back to a 30 year because it lowers my payment the most versus saying I'm three and a half years into this loan. Maybe I should take a 26 and a half year loan term. So my monthly payment savings isn't as much, but I'm not stretching that back out. Mm. We want to keep an eye on a freedom point where at some point you are not going to want to work anymore yeah. and you want to make that mortgage payment go away. So as long as you cover your taxes and insurance, you have shelter at a much lower cost. And heaven forbid, worst case, you can take out a reverse mortgage at some point. That's sort of a fallback. It's an additional safety net for the person that's paid off their home. But if you just keep pushing that off further in the future, 
So you, you said something that was really important. Again, that generation is also the first generation that has ever heard a message that owning a home is stupid. It's mm-hmm. a liability. Um, it ties you down. It's more expensive than renting. You give up your freedom. Right. Now, Grant Cardone, remember how Grant Cardone makes money. And when I say this to you, remember how Grant Cardone makes money. Remember how Josh Lewis makes money. I hear this all <laughs> the time. He was like, you want people to buy homes because that's how you make money is doing loans. I right. said, Let's look at this. Done this for 27 years. I'm a one trick pony. There's nothing else I can do. <laughs> so I am trapped in this industry. And I'm lucky that I'm good enough and have a big enough client base that when times are bad and volume is 50% of what it was two years ago, yeah. I still make a nice living. Right. When we get to a period of time where we have massive tailwinds, like we had in 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. we get to work really long hours and make an awful lot of money. <laughs> I don't ever have to talk someone into buying, borrowing, yes. getting a loan. Right. When they decide that all the things that we talked about, their relationship situation is stable, their child situation is stable, their job situation is stable, they have good credit, they have a down payment, and they've decided they want to be in one location for the next five plus years, preferably seven plus. I am here to help advise you do that as well as possible. Hmm. So circling back, how does Grant Cardone make money? Grant Cardone makes money buying multi-million dollar apartment buildings using other people's money. It's hard to get other people's money when they have bought their own home. So it's really easy to say, this is a terrible idea. Hmm. Let me have your money so I can invest it buying these doors. I'm going to make a big return off of it and you'll get a decent return over there as well. So you're going to be one of my tenants your entire life because I just talked you out of buying a home yourself. Wow. But I'm telling you, this is a great deal because there's always people that need to rent. But ignore that I just told you to be one of those renters. Man, I have really, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but you've never laid it out so succinctly like that. That's quite interesting. Goodness gracious. Okay, you touched then, on it a little. Yeah, go those ahead. Number, no, those numbers can work. But again, are yeah. you that guy? Are right. you that dis- disciplined person, good with numbers, who is comfortable not owning a home and living in an apartment yeah. or renting someone else's home for your entire life? Right, 100%. And when we talk about like freedom or what freedom is or financial freedom and all that good stuff, it's like not being like tied to or like I don't need anything from anybody. And if I am actively investing or if my money and my capital is tied up in this thing that I really don't have a whole lot of control over, I don't know how much freedom that really gives you at that point. Yeah. That's interesting. You touched on it a little bit, like, uh, and this was a question that I wanted to to just, I, I, I know you can, you know, just rattle it off in the back of your hand, but like when somebody is um, thinking about becoming mortgage ready, like what are some of the, just the very basics that they kind of need to be aware of, right? From like a credit standpoint, a down payment standpoint, a liquidity kind of cash on hand. Like what are the, just like the basics that you would run somebody through to just like, okay, this is my kind of checklist that I can sort of get through before I, you know, start to approach this conversation. So a lot of those 25 to 45 year old first time buyers, um, are getting a lot of their information from YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, lots of content out there. Right. Um, in my industry, more than 80% of people that do what I do are morons. You should not listen to them. You should do the opposite of what they say. Um, and just ask them difficult questions and watch them stumble, stutter, or go into salesperson mode. Um, so what happens is I get calls all the time from people, hey, um, I, I'm okay. My, my credit's 585. I, I've watched several videos. I know with FHA, you're okay down to 580. 
And what I would say is we talked about, are you stable in your life, in your finances, in your job, in your relationship? If you have a 585 credit score, you are not. You have not achieved mm. stability in your life. I know what a 585 credit score looks like. And I can tell you that for some of those people, the problems were in the past. Have one right now. The lady uh, went through a divorce two years ago. So I totally get it. And I can see that she is rebuilding her credit. But it's going to be six to 12 months before she's, say, a 660 and probably two years before she's a 750 okay. um, unless yeah. she goes back and aggressively works to pay off and potentially delete some of the negative stuff that's on there. She has to build a new credit history so that the credit scoring algorithms can see, OK, that was a blip and now things are better. Right. So you are going to pay so much more with a sub 640 credit score that I, I would almost say. Um, if I have a client with a 620 and we can kind of quantify it and go, okay, I, I will say it is very rare that we do a loan for someone with a sub 620 credit score. We say 640 will get you good terms on an FHA, 680 will get you the best. 680 will get you the best FHA terms, will get you okay terms on a conventional loan. So really, this blows people's minds. The the median credit score in the United States right now, what would be your guess? What an average Half half of the people are above and half of the people in the United States are below. What do you think a median credit score is? My initial reaction is like 600. It's about 730. Really? Okay. But you hear people all the time, I'm working hard. I'm going to get my, I really want that 700 credit score. I want people to look at me that I'm a good credit risk. Yeah. And for the most part, if you look at the bell curve, probably 90% of the problems creditors have mm -hmm. are with people in the bottom 10% of that okay. distribution. So right. you're under, under 600, you're going, excuse me, you're going to be a problem for your creditors <laughs> at 700, probably not, yeah. but your average, it could go either way. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So really, and, and Fannie Mae is making this change right now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the FHFA, who the government dictates with them. This is some a little bit of woke BS government stuff that they're doing. But the loan level price adjustments right now, 740 and above credit mm -hmm. score gets the best terms on any loan through Fannie okay. Mae or Freddie Mac. Got it. Okay. They're changing that. We're getting new tiers. We're getting a 7, 740 to 7, 741 to 760, 761 to 780, and 781 oh. plus. So okay. now you got to be 781 to get the best terms. Wow. But here's the kicker. I don't have a problem with that. I, I get it. Loan level price adjustments, which is what these are called, are, are meant to compensate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for the additional risk that a borrower represents by going down the scale in credit score okay. or up the scale in loan to value. So it's intuitive that someone with a 640 credit score and 3% down is a much bigger risk than someone with a 740 credit score and 40% down, right? Of course, right, of course. So if I handed you this grid and said, draw these adjustments, I think a, a seventh grade math student could figure out what should that look like? <laughs> well, what they're doing, we have new high tiers for the best credit borrowers and they will all get worse terms than what they get right now. Now on the low end of the scale, we're going to improve all those terms. So essentially we're taxing people with good credit to improve the terms for people with bad credit. Hmm. And if you're getting the feeling that I think the government is stupid, it's because I think the government is stupid. <laughs> if we go back to the 90s, this is the same bullshit that both Republican Party members and Democrats pushed in the 90s, saying... If home ownership is good, it leads to families staying together, better school districts, less crime, all those things. We need to incentivize this versus saying that all of those things are an outcome of having a population who are 
have achieved home ownership. Mm. Let's force people into home ownership. And then magically the rest of that cascade will fall into place. Right. So when we look at that, what happens when you incentivize people on the low end of the credit scale, instead of incentivizing them to get their credit scores better, to become a better credit risk, when you charge them less for being a bad credit risk, you are incentivizing bad outcomes. Now, is this as bad mm. as, as the things that were in place in the late 90s and early 2000s? It's not nearly as bad, right. but it's it's stupid. Because if mm. we sit here and say, are women likely to have um, worse credit scores than men? No, technically, I mean, if we if we look and we break out that median, I think the median is a little higher for women. So mm-hmm. are we helping underserved women? Is there anything unique? And we can say that if you look at credit score distributions, um, non-whites, have lower credit score distributions other than Asians. Asians have higher credit scores than uh, Caucasians. Non-whites in general are a little bit lower. So you can sit here and say, well, we're helping people of color. And you go, okay, but are we helping them? This was the same logic that we used in the 90s, pushing them into homeownership when they haven't become the person who can successfully be a homeowner. Hmm. And I have clients of color all the time that come to me with 740, 750, 780 credit scores. Yeah. So why are we saying let's tax that person of color to subsidize this person of mm. color? It's an arbitrary distinction. And I don't think that homeownership, homeownership is important to building wealth, short-term and long-term generational wealth. Yeah. We should incentivize it, but we should incentivize that through education, through yes. showing people how to maximize their credit scores, how to save more money. We don't teach basic economics. I mean, household economics, like you don't need to know supply demand curves, that type of stuff. <laughs> you need to know, how do I balance my checkbook? What goes into my credit score? What happens when I go to community college for a semester and there's four booths out there giving credit cards to kids that yeah, don't right. understand how it works? Like that's the education that we need to be giving people. I am 100% in favor of, of helping those who have achieved that level of, of being able to get into a home. Like if you look, we haven't lowered, we say you have to come up with a minimum of 3% down. We haven't said, let's come up with a zero down program for those people. That is actually the biggest hurdle is coming up with that down payment, right. especially in high cost areas. Right. But what's more, what's more predictive of loss to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? It's not the down payment. Does 3% really predict that or, or protect them from losing money? No. So if we say it's okay at three, we should say it's okay at zero for mm. those who have achieved a certain level yeah. of, of credit worthiness. Right. So give the education to show people how to get there, give incentives to make it easier. I think everyone should have a good path to home ownership as long as they have achieved a certain level of stability in their life where they right. can successfully become a homeowner. Goodness. Yeah. Your commitment to education is something that I truly, really, really admire. I mean, it's, again, it's a big inspiration behind me starting systems of wealth. Cause it's just like these conversations are not talked about, especially for me, like being an entrepreneur, like I'm so close to my money. I have to be, cause it's just, you know, like you said, like I'm being self-employed, like I'm responsible for myself. And I think we find ourselves like, you know, the youth it's interesting, right? Cause like we are, we are so quick to take loans out to go get an education. Right. And in that sense, you're the asset I guess is sort of yourself or like the education that you're acquiring is kind of in that sense. Like that's the asset. But then we talk about taking out a loan to go and acquire a house and then we get, everything gets all screwy. Right. And so like, it's interesting because we're so at such a young age, we're so quick to then take out a loan. And like, that's just kind of, that's the normal thing that people push. And then it becomes now we're in a little bit more of a financial stable position and then taking out a loan to go and acquire an asset. It's like all of a sudden it's crazy and that gets up in the air. But I think like that, having that conversation and that distinction has been really interesting for me to think about is like, it's still, it's the same sort of almost mechanism of, or the event of taking out a loan to go and acquire 
X to go and acquire something. But in the student loan example, for the most part, nobody is ever going to be able to handle that amount of debt that they're taking on or be able to out-earn the ability to pay that down and then experience a freedom where they don't have that hanging over their head or their interest. And if they do that so early, then they may never be in a position where they are able to build up enough of a down payment to go in and then acquire a house, which is like what we're trying to get people to, which is going to ultimately build your wealth up over time. So like that, I find that distinction really interesting. Um, I know, like, I know we're limited on time, but I want to just dig into it just a little bit with you. Like you're, so the little bit more of an advanced sort of like then investing in real estate. Can you just walk me through a little bit? Cause you and I haven't gotten to dig too, but I know you did some, you know, some fixes and flips and I know you own some apartment buildings. You got some of that, but can you walk me through just sort of your initial break into investing in real estate and some of the experiences you've had, some of the mistakes that you've had, kind of where you're at with it right now, sort of just your expert inside level kind of feel towards, you know, actually then becoming like an investor in real estate itself. If I still had my notebooks from 1996, <laughs> 1997, Josh, um, I had a client who was buying uh, four unit buildings here in Huntington Beach and Costa Mesa okay. in the, the low income parts of Huntington Beach and Costa Mesa. They still weren't cheap. Um, he was buying them. Uh, you'll This will tell you it was a long time ago. It was in the 90s. Um, high 200s, low 300s. And they All needed right. Fifty to eighty thousand dollars worth of work, and when they okay. were done, they were worth four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Nice, very nice. But I sat here and I said, "Hmm, before I buy a house, I want to acquire four of those." And had <laughs> had I done that, those those apartments are all close to two million dollars, right? Dude, now. goodness. And gracious. and twenty years down the line, with if I had followed my own advice and just paid them down and refinanced for shorter terms and lower interest rates, the payments would have gone down consistently throughout mm -hmm. that twenty five years as rates went down. Uh, and rents would have gone up and they would have been long since paid off. And so I would have about $8 million of real estate and rents on those probably say seven to $8,000 a month they're bringing in. So four of them, you'd have 30 something thousand dollars a month of income before taxes, before your expenses in terms of property taxes, hazard insurance, maintaining the place. Say you'd have $20,000. So 8 million on the, the <laughs> yeah. network side of the ledger, $20,000 a month Free of cash income. Flow. Goodness. I didn't do it. I got an awesome opportunity. My okay. step-grandpa had a client who was selling a condo down on 20th Street. Okay. I bought it for $197,000. I sold it for $715,000. So we Dude. did okay. Holy we didn't, goodness. We, didn't, we did not do that poorly on that. No, before. sir. So kind of to, to walk through that, I bought yeah. that in, in 98, two years okay. before I got married. That was your um, very first, that was the first purchase. First and we okay. left it. I, I stayed home and lived with my dad. Yeah. And rented and rented that oh, out. You did. All right. There were there were tenants in it when I bought it and they okay. wanted to stay there. So cool, yeah. you guys stay there. Told them about two months before I got married, hey, here's 60 days. You guys, um, we're gonna we're gonna come in. And we we gutted it, made it cute, wonderful. My wife and I lived there the first three years we were married. And then we started going, we're gonna have kids. And you may say, Josh, you don't have any kids. <laughs> well, we never had the kids, but we decided that hey, we're gonna have kids and we want a house, we want a dog. We did get dogs. Yeah, of course. But uh we bought our house. And so what I did at that time, it had gone up to 355, I think is what it appraised for. Okay. We took, we took out a hundred thousand dollars okay. and used that as the down payment on our current house. Nice. Paid 580 for that. Um, it went up to about a million. And then when the market went down, it went down. I don't think it ever really went under 800, maybe 750, 775. So at its worst, it was still worth 200,000 more than we paid for it. Today, it's worth three times what we paid for it. Love it. And, and I don't care because I'm going to own that house my entire life. And right. 
In California, after you turn 55, you are able to transfer your property taxes with you. So there's a chance that with that change in the law that I might move, but more likely we're going to own that home uh, my entire life. So along the way, um, I'm just trying to think of everything that we acquired in 2010, yeah. whenever, when everything was in the tank, we, with my in-laws, we acquired a condo in Rancho Mirage. We paid 260,000 for it, probably put 125 into it. It's like a brand new house. So we're into it for 385, a uh, model match to ours just sold for 799. So uh, again, <laughs> right. And, and in that time, based off of our down payment and aggressively paying it down, we use as a vacation rental. We use those rents to pay it down yeah. and we've paid it off. So nice. uh, again, I'm, we're, my wife and I are not the only owners of the property, but it's a right. chunk of equity there. Of course. Um, around that same time, 2010, when everything was in the tank, I bought a four unit building with my flipping partner in Long Beach. And I called her up and I said, Hey, I got an opportunity to buy a fourplex. It's the most amazing deal I've ever seen. She goes, cool. How much is it? I said, they want $5.99 for it. She goes, that's crazy. That thing's worth about $4.75. Yeah. Open your ears and listen here. <laughs> the seller was stuck on getting his number of $5.99. Okay. He owned it free and clear. He had a problem. He inherited it from his parents. He lived in one unit. His buddies lived in the other three units. Oh, so his buddies. Boy like to sit around and, and drink and smoke weed. And they didn't so much like paying their friend the rent <laughs> and being a good buddy, he was not able to evict them. So Aye. he said, if you become the owner here, you can collect rent from these folks. And I said, that's a good point. So his rents were way below market. We knew we had upside in the rents. Um, what he was offering was pay me 10% down. So it was a 60. No, no, we gave him, we did give him uh 15% down. So we put like a hundred thousand dollars down. He financed $500,000, $3,000 a month payment, no interest. Hmm. So the, the $3,000 a month goes towards that 500,000. So right. we bought in 2010. Um, I believe it is 4th of July, three, 4th of July is out. So two and a half years, it will be paid for. All right. So you still have that in the portfolio. That's still, you still have still that. Have that. Oh, and, I love it. And she and I bought that in a self-directed IRA. Okay. So we pay, we pay no taxes on the income, yep. no taxes on anyone else paying that down. Love so it. we collect, uh, it's a seven, call it, it's a, a hair shy of $7,000 a month rent on that property. Uh, the taxes are six or $700 a month, other maintenance and others just say it costs us about 1200 bucks. Um, and then you've got the mortgage payment right now of 3000. So 4,200, it brings in just about $2,500 for the Very two of nice. us to split every month. Awesome. Now in, in two years, two and a half years, when that's paid off, yeah. now we're both going to have $2,500 a month in our self-directed IRAs to invest yes. however we want every right. month. I don't do anything. So I'll be 53 hmm. and have at least 12 years before retirement where I want that money. So what are we talking? $30,000 a year towards $360,000. If I get no return on that, we'll just sit there <laughs> on a property that's free and clear, should appreciate. If it goes up 3% over those 12 years, should be worth a third more than what it is worth now, which is like a million one. So it's doubled from when we bought it. And I didn't even care about that. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care if it goes up. I know what rents are going to do. We talk about, should you fix your housing payment? Should you be a renter? I knew what rents were going to do. I don't care what the value of that property is yes. because we will probably own that the day I die. Right. Why would I kill that golden goose that lays $2,500 of eggs for me every right. month? <laughs> you got your hand on the jewel. Yeah, 100%. So that's part so, of my, my investment portfolio. I have a self-directed, I haven't done anything with yet. I think I'm probably sitting on... 
18, 19, maybe 20 grand in there right now that I just haven't done them with anything yet. I'm just continuing to kind of stack cash. Ethereum, sort of... Ethereum, <laughs> Ethereum. Yeah, I got now. <laughs> now is the time, my friend. Now is the time. My, uh, I know you got to jump at the top of the hour. So my last question, I think this is, so I've been recently wrapping these up with this last question. I think this would be an interesting, you'd have an interesting take on it, but um, what is your, how do you define wealth? What's your definition of wealth? What does that mean to you when you hear that word? How does that, you know, how does that mean? What does that mean for your, for you in your life? Having more than you need. And, and what does, what does need? We all define it differently. I have friends that are crazy. They, they need to lease a new car every two years. Right. They need a bigger, better house. Um, I will say I'm going to be 50 in six months and my perspective from 40 to 50 is different. Forget 30 to 50, it's very different. Right. And I sit here and I go, pretty much have everything I need. What do I want? I want to get my house paid off mm -hmm. so that we don't have that overhead. Um, would like to, you know, I told you, and I'm throw this out here not to say like this will require a, a big, big um, commitment and return over the next six to seven years. But uh, a mentor of mine, of yours, Perry Marshall, um, this is his mindset is there's something bad coming down the pike around 2027 ish yeah, and you right. should accumulate 10 million liquid before then. Yep. So that is my goal and my objective. And it, and the good thing about that is if I do what I'm doing today, I will not get there. So it says I have mm. to do different things. Yes. Um so what what does 10 million dollars do for you? It's different things for different people and that number doesn't have to be that number. Right. But say if, if you look at a point of saying, I don't want to ever have to think about money. I yep. am simple. I don't go on European vacations. <laughs> I drive a 2017 Toyota Tundra. It's a badass truck. Uh, yeah. About every five years, I like to get a new one. I like to put a sweet stereo in it. I like to put some <laughs> wheels on it, but I'm not going out and buying a Mercedes. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. So in general, I'm a simple man. A lot of people would look at what I have and go, easy for you to say, you've got some really cool stuff. But I, I also, I don't look and go, well, I want a $3 million house. I want a $180,000 car. I don't want any of that. What I want is no headaches mm -hmm. and freedom for my wife and I to do whatever we want mm -hmm. to do. So yes. a goal for us is to to hit the road and just road trip. We oh, like I love driving. it. We like yeah. going. We like seeing places. And uh -huh. we like taking our dog with us. So it's easier <laughs> driving than it is flying. So I need some time freedom to get that. You mm -hmm. know very well what I don't have right now in my life. Is time <laughs> right. So where where That's am I? At the, I am at the poverty level when we talk about <laughs> time time wealth. Right. So what is wealth? Wealth is is having my needs met with much more free time than I have right now. So from uh, that perspective, I would not consider myself wealthy. So as we're designing this hmm. business, any other businesses that I am in, the goal is to get freedom where my wife and I have zero worries about money mm -hmm. and we can do what we want. That doesn't mean go crazy. Wow. It doesn't mean eat at, at Morton's every night or go to Mastro's. It's just, you don't, here's a simple thing. Like this is dumb and I don't know that this mindset would ever go away, but people talk about inflation. Inflation is crazy. I go to the habit a couple of days a week for lunch. It's literally in Southern California places called the habit. When I started going there six, seven years ago, my salad um, with double steak on the salad was like $13.95, drinks okay. $2.45. So you're yeah. like tax everything 16 at the inch door. At right. the door. So we get a patch of inflation. I look up about a year or two and I'm like, goodness gracious, it's like $18.85 for this. I'm like, that is almost $20 just to go to lunch. This is silly. 
Well, I walk in January one and they said, hold my beer. We're going to show you. What is. <laughs> it is just a couple of pennies shy of $21. I... So I think, and maybe I'm crazy. And maybe when you, you never arrive at this point, I, I think when you are truly wealthy, you don't think about that. You're mm. like, it doesn't change my life, whether I pay $16 or $21. Right. So I think when you're trying to achieve wealth, you need to focus mm. on those things. Yeah. Once you've achieved it, you can go, I would rather pay $16, <laughs> but I don't care if I have to pay $21. Right, right. It's choices, it's options, it's freedom. It's the ability to do what you want that means the most to your lifestyle. I love that definition. And I think you and I share a very similar sentiment. I think that's why you and I are aligned on so many of these similar things that we talked about today, because, you know, it's just, well, a lot of my way that I perceive wealth and life and business and real estate and all of this stuff is, you know, is a big part of you. So again, I just want to say thanks for taking the time to, to jump on. I know your time is extremely valuable, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, you are very active with your content and publishing a lot of this education that people want to learn more or just engage with you, hear more about sort of your philosophy and what you're talking about. Where can people just continuously, you know, engage and consume your content? So the biggest and best best place is the podcast, The Educated Homebuyer. We have a YouTube channel for it. If you like watching your podcasts on YouTube, we do it in video. It is posted on, on YouTube. So go out there, um, watch and subscribe. It is on all of the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, wherever you consume podcasts. Um, we are working on building our internet presence apart from that. Um, every week, you you know, Noah, one of my good friends and business partners, realtor Jeb Smith, he's got 70,000 followers on his YouTube channel. Every Wednesday at Fought from 5 to 7, we are live mm -hmm. answering questions live. So every week, two hours, if you have a question, show up there. Um, but those are, those are the big ones. We're going to be working on building out my channel as, as well as, as short form stuff, Instagram, TikTok, that stuff. Um, but really I, I don't think that, that housing and real estate is, is great for short form. Short form is sort of the, the trap to pull people in <laughs> and get them to spend at least 10 to 12 minutes listening, if not the full long form 30, 40 minute podcasts where we do deep dives on stuff. Yep. But if you have questions, if you're unsure, one of my biggest sayings is numbers never lie. People hmm. do. So if you have a question, <laughs> should I do this or should I do that? If you're good with a spreadsheet, crack it out and, and go through it yourself. If you're not, get with a trusted advisor and work your way through it. If you know how to lay out the numbers and properly account for everything, it will lead you in the right direction. I love it. And I'll be sure to to link all that stuff here in the, descri the description of this uh, episode. Just hope anybody else, you know, looking for those resources, feel free to check that out. Again, Josh, really appreciate your time. To all my builders out there, I salute you. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for your time, effort, energy, and attention. And I will see you guys all in the next episode.